You're listening to Were You Still Talking? They pump out your blood and they pump in a, a new batch of blood and all of it is the blood of children. All the big stars are going to be on TV now. I mean, it's just the way it's going. Your role, I think, will be played by Brad Pitt. What'd you wear? Uh, I wore my loincloth wrapped around my feet. Are you going by John today? And that's absolutely true. You feel it in every cell in your body. Yeah, you can, you can bend the truth and bend the visualizations no matter what your political affiliation. You could have an alpaca. My a, a girlfriend's daughter recently got married and they had llamas or alpacas at the wedding. A recording room. They recorded uh, a couple songs in the kitchen of Rumbo. So, wait, you, you, you microdosed before this, right? What? Hey, thanks for tuning in. This is Were You Still Talking? And it is Joel Albrecht talking again. And today in my studio on the Zoom, I have Stephen, 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 Stephen Holly Martin. He's a talk show host of a popular weekly internet podcast, The Truth About Life. And he, it became clear to him when talking on that show and interviewing um, all types of uh, uh, near-death survivors, psychics, researchers into the paranormal, as well as quantum physicists and medical doctors, that humankind is on the cusp of a transition to a new understanding of the true nature of reality. To share what he's learned and to help speed the transition, which he believes will result in a rebirth of optimism and the world becoming a better place to live and work, he's written more than two dozen books, many of which have achieved bestseller status on Amazon. Martin's a former principal of the world-renowned ad firm that created the Geico Gecko, that's a bit of a tongue twister, and Virginia is for Lovers, the Martin Agency, and is currently the editor and publisher of the Oakley Press. He's the only three-time winner of the Reader's Digest Book Award, having won first prize twice for fiction and once for nonfiction. He's also won first prize for visionary fiction from independent publishers, and first prize for nonfiction from U.S. Book News. That's quite the resume. It's really um, a pretty amazing, pretty amazing volume of work. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm very interested to hear your insights on on all of this stuff. Um, if anyone listened to the last podcast, this is sort of um, an entirely different take on things. Uh, last week, last week, the last podcast I did was with a, not a psychic, but a mentalist who uh, openly pretends to be psychic, but does it through magic tricks, basically. Which oh. is, <laughs> so we're actually talking about the uh, kind of the opposite end of that. People that um, have had near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, um, looking at uh, getting to one of the subjects of my podcast, which is going beyond the, the usual conversation and uh, finding out about things beyond our understanding, perhaps. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, Joel, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, so am I. So am I. Um, NDEs, perhaps I, I should explain for people who don't who aren't clear or, or not familiar with it. NDE stands for near-death experience. And it doesn't mean, that's not like the faces of death videos you used to see on YouTube. It's not people who almost <laughs> died. 
It's people who uh, li- um, uh, died according to medical science and came back and have a story to tell about it. Um, there are hundreds of them. Uh, there are many, many um, people who you who have uh, done have best-selling books about it, and there are a lot of different uh, stories you can see about it. So you actually had a podcast where you interviewed a lot of these people um, and talked about their experiences. That's correct. Yeah, there. You know, there. Really, there are thousands of them now. I think that uh, there's even a website. I don't remember the URL, but uh, that where people go and read about near-death experiences that people have had. It's because I think that uh, medical science has advanced to the point where we can bring people back from clinical death. And uh, so that's that's happening more and more. And people are, it used to be kind of, you know, a little bit didn't want to talk about it kind of thing because people, they were afraid people would think they were crazy. But now, not so much, and, and people really are talking about it. I read my first book about it in 1975 or something like that by uh, Raymond Moody, who was a uh, intern at the University of Virginia Medical School and, and interviewed, uh, I think, over 100 people who had had near-death experiences and wrote all about it then. It was, fasc- it was fascinated me, and I read it from cover to cover in one sitting. Wow. Yeah, that kind of I've I've read a few books. I've seen a lot of interviews, and in many cases, um, you know, I mean, I've heard re- people remark that they um, they think that people are just trying to get attention. Where usually the opposite is true. Usually they're they're you know very reluctant to tell their story because it does sound out of the normal. You know, far yeah. beyond what people are used to, and. Uh, if they come, especially if they're in the medical field, um, which I've seen a few, you know, more than a few doctors tell their story of um, experiences with it and experiences with patients who told them stories that they shouldn't have been able to, you know, see of things they shouldn't have been able to see. And yeah. it, it's always just amazed me. Um, yeah, I think one of the most interesting one story like that that I uh, know about is a lady called, her name is Pam Reynolds. In fact, you could probably, I think there's a YouTube video of Pam Reynolds. Anybody who wants to maybe uh, put Pam Reynolds' near-death experience in would probably find it. But she was in a situation where she had two aneurysms, inoperable aneurysms in her brain, in her head. And so they actually had to... uh, the only chance she had, if one of those burst, obviously, it would be the end for her. Mm-hmm. And so she they actually drained the blood from her body. Her heart stopped. She was a cadaver. Of course, they they packed ice around her and so forth so that her you know body wouldn't deteriorate while they were working on her. Opened up her skull and were able to, with no blood in there, fix those aneurysms. And while that was happening, Actually, while she heard she heard the saw, the drill that was uh, cutting open her skull, she popped out of her body. She was able to view what was going on in the operating room. Uh, she just was able to describe what the doctors and nurses were saying, and a couple of things that really uh, made it clear that she actually did see this. One 
one of the conversations had to do with a nurse who was trying to get something into her into that artery that goes down near your groin so that they she could uh, drain the blood mm-hmm. anyway she described the instrument that the doctor was using which she said looked like a drill and she had heard the word saw before and she thought it was going to be a saw but it would look more like a drill so a lot of things that that really clearly show that she saw what was going on when she was a cadaver her body was wow. and then she went on through the tunnel that you read about or heard about uh, toward mm-hmm. the light and she uh, was able to visit with her grandmother who had passed away some years before and an uncle who had passed away and described all that really fascinating information and then finally her her uncle told her that she had to go back she said she didn't want to go back she liked it there with such you know, a loving place you know she was feeling great and she, but the, the uncle took her down the tunnel and she could see her body on the uh, operating table and she, it was a cadaver. And she said she really didn't want to get back in that. But of course they, what they did is they put the blood back in her body. They had some way of warming up her body again. And, and then of course they used those electro things and, you know, did the spark and she was back in her, back in her body. So fascinating story but one if you were gonna do an experiment to see what what happened when you're dead that would have been it because she was dead yeah that's those things always amaze me and seems like pretty clear evidence since it's um you know she tells her story to uh doctors and people of the medical community but it's still very um I don't know. It's still very kind of shoved under the rug and things like that. Well, you know, doctors uh, want to fight death. They don't want to. That's the. I guess they went into that uh, profession so that they could they could uh, prevent death. And so the idea that maybe death isn't such a bad thing. But I think the real reason is that most scientists, or at least until recently, uh, are scientific materialists. From it's a 19th century idea that. Uh, Actually, it goes back further if you want to know the history of it. I have researched all that. The idea that nothing exists except material substance. If you can't see it under a microscope, it doesn't exist is, is the idea. And, and a lot of science, at least official science, sticks to that now. It's their story and they're sticking to it. Right, right. <laughs> There's so yeah. much evidence to the contrary nowadays. It's, it's absolutely amazing. The University of Virginia Medical School, for example, has been studying this for 60 years since 1960, 61 years now. And uh, they have come out and said that the brain does not create consciousness. The brain is a receiver of consciousness that integrates it with your body, but actually consciousness originates someplace else. And, uh, and that's, that's, they, that's what they say. And they've got different reasons that we could talk about that they believe that. Mm-hmm. So they, that's almost... I mean, that's not irrefutable evidence of life after death, but it's pretty good evidence. I mean, they're close, if not, you know, at least one university convinced that consciousness has not really come from uh, the brain, which has been the the common uh, medical idea for, well, forever. <laughs> well, really not forever, but it has, forever. Been, for, for the, has been for the last uh, 150, 160 years. Uh, before that, people back in the uh, 18th century, 
and before people thought that the uh, the consciousness and and the body were separate. To, you know that that <laughs> we have ghosts when we die and so forth. And uh, but uh, the uh, University of Virginia Medical School, a guy named Ian Stephen, uh, was uh, the one who began that research, and he had. He started researching children's memories of past lives. And he began doing that in 1960. Back then, most of the cases were in, in countries where uh, people believe in reincarnation, like India and Burma and places like that. But uh, nowadays, I'm told, I've interviewed the researcher who took over his place uh, at the university a couple of times, and he says they have no trouble at all finding uh, cases like that nowadays because they have a website. And when people or parents uh, start having children talk about past lives, they could do a Google search and they'll find them, and they'll you know they'll get get onto them right away. But uh, yeah, they have in those sixty years they've collected something like twenty seven hundred cases of children who remember past lives and they've researched them to see whether there, there was really an individual that the child indicates he was, he or she was. And uh, they that uh, well over half of them, I think like 1,600 of them, they've been able to check out as verified uh, that indeed there was someone who fit that description who had had that, you know, different things that the child talked about uh, that kind of life. That's amazing. That's that's really incredible. I've always wondered about past lives. Um, I mean, the the theory that I kind of ascribe to is that we live a uh, a lot of different realities all at once. But it it's kind of beyond our understanding to to get to that. Um, have yeah, you well, I think yeah. When, I think when we do, in in uh, in fact, live a couple of realities at once. I think when you go to sleep at night, you you go into another reality and may communicate with people that uh, not only that are alive today, but that are, you know, on the other side. So who knows? Oh but, yeah, that um, makes sense. And we, I often see people who've passed on, uh, in our dreams and um, dreams did definitely seem like a different, um, a different reality, but they're def they're real. It's, e you know, it's either our consciousness working out or subconscious working out problems or, or we're literally going into a different realm while we're resting in this you know, in this realm and experiencing different things to to continue to grow. You actually come from a background that's um, mostly science, isn't that right? Where that you grew yeah. up as a materialist. Yeah, I grew up. Yeah, I grew up in yeah. a family of materialists that uh, believed that there was. If you couldn't see it under a microscope, it didn't exist. And, right, right. And uh, that was my background. And so I was, I was a, I don't know if you would call me an atheist. I was, I was an agnostic. I didn't know. I didn't think you could know if, if uh, any of this kind of thing was real. But then um, I, I had a, an out-of-body experience when I was 25 years old. I, I, uh, I had the flu. And I was really sick, but I lived in an apartment with two other guys. I was working at an ad agency in, in Baltimore, Maryland. And, and I heard these people come into the apartment 
and there was a, suddenly a party going on, and it was a Saturday night. So I went downstairs, and I had a couple of drinks, and uh, then there were some people smoking a funny cigarette, and I had a little bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, and I started to feel horrible, and I kind of knee walked all the way back up to my bedroom on the on the next on the second floor, and flopped onto the bed, and it was spinning like uh, a helicopter's blade, you know, taking off. And then suddenly everything was calm. And, and I, I looked down. I don't know why I looked down. I looked up first and I saw the ceiling. And I looked down and I saw my body lying on the bed, passed out. And I thought, and, and I was just, it was very calm. And, you know, I felt okay. For, when I, just a minute ago, it felt horrible. And I thought, you know, this can't be because my brain creates consciousness. But I'm up here conscious of my body down there and my brain's down there within my body. So this can't be. And then kind of the next thing that happened was I woke up the next morning and I felt a whole lot better. But that really started me on this journey of trying to figure out how that could be possible and what the real, the true nature of reality is. And I joined the Rosie Crucian Society and I can tell you, they know a lot of stuff. You know, that's an ancient society that Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and a lot of our founding fathers were part of. And they were they all believed in reincarnation because it's one of the teachings of Rosicrucian. So that kind of tells you where how I got started on it. And when you were floating above your body and looking down, it was not um it it was um it was obvious that was a real experience, right? It that it didn't feel like a dream. It didn't no. It didn't feel like you were hallucinating. Uh, no, wasn't, there's a, wasn't there's the funny a, cigarettes. <laughs> and I'd, I'd had the funny cigarettes before and I had some after. It's not the same thing at right, all. Right, right. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I mean, it was real. I was looking down and there I am, you know, on the bed. Oh, my gosh, how can this be? You know, and it was just, it was, as they say sometimes about the near death, it was as real or more real than rea real reality. You know, it was like clear as day. And, oh yes, I, I've actually I've heard a lot of the near death um, experiencers say that that it's it actually seems more real than than life. You know, yeah, than our life yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's interesting. Life now seems pretty real if you get hurt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once you break an arm or something, it suddenly seems more real. But. <laughs> Uh, but what is what is the society? I haven't heard of that. This the sounds really interesting. The, the Rosicrucian Society? The Rosicrucians, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you could Google that. Um, okay. They're headquartered in uh, California, I think, San Jose. But uh, they've been around for, well, they say they've been around forever and ever and ever, but they have been around for at least two or 300 years. And, wow. Uh, they, it's, you know, esoteric kind of teachings has to do with what reality is, which they would say are, is vibrations, which is true. Mm -hmm. And uh, that uh, that we reincarnate, that reincarnation is the thing, that the average lifespan is something, I probably shouldn't be telling you all this because it's a secret society, but I haven't been involved with them probably in 25 years now. Oh, that's okay. No one, will, <laughs> no one listens to this. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they say that to the... Average, li average lifespan is 140 years. So if you live for 
70 years, you're going to spend 70 years before you, re- before you incarnate again. Oh, uh, interesting. Now, that would mm-hmm. be on average because the University of Virginia, those kids that come back, uh, or they're, they're, not ki- they're not kids when they left, but when they, when they start talking about their previous lives, usually it starts around when they're two years old and continues until they're about six years old. Um, a lot of them come back as quickly as 15 months from the time that they die. And uh, some of them, they're outliers. Uh, there's a famous uh, case of a, of a child who apparently was a fighter pilot in World War II who uh, was shot down at Iwo Jima. Uh, name, name was James uh, Lettinger. And he uh, was reborn in 1999, I believe. So that had been, what, 60 years or so. Um, but, and, and like, but many of those cases of the University of Virginia cases are, they were traumatic deaths. And so uh, it may be that they didn't go through the normal whatever it is you go through between lives. They kind of came back faster because of uh, unfinished business or they got felt like their life got cut short and so they wanted to come back again pretty quick. Many of them were murdered. Some of them were killed in wars. Uh, that sort of accidents, that sort of thing. Unnatural deaths, I guess you would call it. Right, right. And how did, I mean, at what point did science decide that there was not really a spiritual side to medicine. It was all entirely materialistic. Like you said, 150 years ago. Um, well, I say that because that's when Darwin published his uh, On the Origin of Species in 1859. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really started before that. Um, there was a philosopher in the, what would it be, 17th century uh, yeah, 1600s, uh, named uh, Thomas Hobbes. And Hobbes uh, was an Englishman who uh, made a statement that got picked up by intellectuals, mm-hmm. later turned into the Age of Enlightenment, or the, uh, you know, all the people believe this. And he, his statement was that uh, God created uh, the world, the universe, and if God created it, then that's all there is. There can't be anything else. And he, he was really railing against the idea back then of witchcraft and ghosts and all kinds of supernatural stuff that people believed in back in those days, particularly with this witch trials and all of that, you know, people right. cavorting with uh, Satan and and uh, he he just you know wanted to put it into that. He said you know the only thing that exists is material reality. He didn't put it in those words, but that's what it meant. And people latched onto that. And so intellectuals in the uh, in the 18th century that he was 17th century in mm-hmm. the 18th century, you know, like uh, Thomas Jefferson and and others. Uh, that, that, that's what they believed. They believed in what is come to be done as the great clockmaker theory, where God 
uh, created the universe, kind of wound it up and let it go. It's no longer involved in it and all that. You know, all it is is a kind of like a great big uh, uh, pool game or, you know, uh, the balls and things spinning around each other. And then, you know, along came Darwin in the uh, 19th century who uh, said that he tried to, he explained how uh, we have life and how it's all come, everything came from a common origin, but it's evolved into these different branches on the tree. And so, you know, that took God out of it completely. And that really is what most scientists still, you know, hang on to today. Now, one of the, my books, I talk about, okay, I think, you know, Darwin was probably right about survival of the fittest being a mechanism of how things go from uh, maybe one environment to another, so how organisms adapt. But think, for example, of the guys who discovered uh, DNA back in 1953. The DNA molecule, as everybody knows, is a helix kind of shape. And if you took all that and stretched it out, it would be over six feet long inside that tiny one molecule. Now, very, very skinny, but six feet long. Mm -hmm. And yet all of that is uh, like computer code that tells the body how to make uh, proteins and when to make them and so on and so forth. So how could something six feet of computer code that's microscopic happen by accident? Uh, you know, and then how could, uh, how could something like a, uh, from a one-celled animal to us with eyes, ears, kidneys, livers, so forth, how does the heart or liver develop by accident? How does that make survival of the fittest? In other words, there are all kinds of holes in the Darwinian theory, basically uh, because of the complexity that we now understand that they didn't understand back in the 19th century that exists that would, you know, people, mathematicians have done the statistical analysis on that, those sort of things happening. And there's not enough time from the time that the earth formed until life came about for that to have happened. Statistically, it's impossible. So what is it? it? My theory is that consciousness is the, uh, is primary, is the ground of reality. And this really goes with what uh, the Hindu Ritchies figured out 4,000 years ago. They called it Verda. Uh -huh. uh, and, but really, when you boil down Verda and see what they're talking about, it's really consciousness. And there are quantum physicists that I've researched, that I've talked to, who talk about the unified field being the ground of reality, what everything comes from, you know, the Big Bang. But when you boil it down, it's really the same thing as Verda or consciousness. I mean, that's what it is. And all of us are conscious, just as plants and animals and everything else is conscious. We happen to have, we happen to be self-aware. But um, my theory then is that we all share the same consciousness we, and I'm not the only person who thinks this, but we think we're different because we've got all our memories and our, uh, uh, we've got our 
ego that's developed over a period of time. And, and even our subconscious mind has memories of past lives. People would call that the soul. But it's all of that makes us feel like we're different. But if we really think about the silent observer at the back of our mind that can kind of observe our own thoughts, that is what I'm talking about being uh, the consciousness that we all share. Oh, I see what you mean. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm one of these um, people that believe that we're all connected. Uh, it's hard to uh, kind of imagine that as human beings because our ego does, is, does a really good job of, you know, fooling us <laughs> to think we're not connected and that other people are different and so we should be angry at them and stuff. And, yeah. you know, that also comes from a survival instinct, um, as far as I know, that uh, I've been reading different books about how man, the origins of man and, and things. Um, we survived for a long time by telling, you know, telling large groups of people that that other group is not as good. So we, we should take over that territory and eat, you know, and eat those plants and animals or whatever it was. So it's it's been you know it was a long time that our survival might have depended on uh having these opinions that were not connected but uh, i definitely believe that everything is connected there is an amazing documentary that came out recently i believe it's on netflix about um fungi um and how it is literally connected all over the world they're now finding that that these plants underground are connected to each other for thousands of miles and they communicate um they communicate between each other all over the all over the earth and it's it's pretty pretty impressive which is just kind of another illustration of how how things are connected you know and how, how everything can be connected and and it is we just don't uh have a clear understanding of it yet yeah and i would go so far as to say there really is only one life Mm -hmm. And we're, we're all part of that one life. And, and you're absolutely correct, I believe, when you say that the ego is uh, a product of evolution. It, we, as we were evolving, we needed to uh, think of ourselves at first and right. more right. important than everything else, or we wouldn't survive. You know, that's it. Yeah. And, you know, if the bad guys came along, we had to fight them. And, you know, they're, Everything you said about the ter our territorial instincts of, you know, this is my land and those are my uh, cows over there kind of thing. Where, But uh, you also see when there are um, disasters where people will, you know, run into a burning house to save somebody they don't even know. And yes. that to right. me is getting down to what's really all about. We're all one. We just don't realize it because our egos won't let us. And, uh, but sometimes that ego goes away when, when a situation gets like that. And, uh, you know, people will do miraculous things to save others. Yeah. You actually see that in a lot of big disasters where, um, you know, in the movies, a disaster happens and there's lots of looting and there's lots of, you know, nasty stuff. But in the real world, when those things happen, most people, jump, jump on, you know, how do I help everyone? How do, how do I get my neighbor out of there? Or how do I get my neighbor's neighbor, you know, 
uh, out of this disaster zone and, and get help to them. So that, yeah, that kind of shows how our, our connected instincts will just kind of kick in, I think, in those circumstances. They kind of jump right in. Um, so something we, another question I had about reincarnation is if, if that exists, and I believe it definitely is possible, why? Why do we reincarnate? I mean, what, what's your theory on that? My theory on why we in, reincarnate is really that it is part of evolution, that the whole, uh, I think that life itself has, and I use this in one of my novels that I wrote, uh, that the secret of life is the urge to become. We're, we're always trying to be more and better and to grow, most of us. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people get depressed and don't do that, but I'm talking about normally. And that uh, really the purpose of life is to evolve, and we can get into, you know, where evolving to what. But uh, so the reason you come back, well, there can be a number of reasons. I mean, the Buddhists say you come back because you miss worldly pleasures, you know, sex and food and things like that that you can't have as a spirit. But typically, I think people come back either because they have something they want to accomplish, a mission, or they have something, some things that they want to learn, that they're trying to develop themselves, to develop their souls, you know, to perfect their souls. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, what, what I'm talking about here, when, you, when you're trying to overcome uh, some, well, karma. Are you mm-hmm. familiar with the word karma? I'm familiar with the word karma. Yeah, that's that's been around. I've learned about that when I was in probably junior high or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. You do something bad, and something bad comes back at you. You know, that's mm-hmm. the cause and effect part of it. But there's really more to it than that. You ever seen the movie uh, Groundhog Day? Oh yes, yeah. Great, great movie. I think Groundhog Day, that movie, is a. Uh, metaphor or what's the other word a allegory mm-hmm. of what life is about in reincarnation if you haven't seen it out for some of your listeners uh it bill murray is this character in this movie who when it starts out he is a real cynic and he's he's just kind of a jerk and things happen to him and he just you know lashes out like a jerk or a cynic would and makes a mess out of things and goes through the whole day doing that. And then when he goes to sleep at night, the next morning he wakes up and it's Groundhog Day again, the same day. And the same things happen to him. And all that goes on for an hour and a half until finally at the end of the the last time that February 2, Groundhog's Day comes around again, he has changed and instead of acting like a jerk and a cynic, he, he does the right thing. He treats people with love, you know, with respect and love. And he saves somebody who's choking and he uh, is nice to the guy who's trying to sell him insurance and things like that. But after he goes through that day, he goes to bed, he wins the girl. He gets the girl who thinks he's a jerk in the beginning, now thinks he's a great guy and likes him. He goes to bed that night and wakes up the next morning, it's February 3rd. Well, to me, that's an allegory about what 
reincarnation is about. You keep coming back till you get it right, till you learn from the mistakes you made and the things that come at you because of the mistakes you made, until you learn how to deal with them. And then you grow, your spirit grows, your soul grows, if you want to use that word, and uh, you're able to move on. So what do you think of that? Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, or maybe you just miss coffee. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I, maybe he did. Maybe he did just miss. He certainly did that first day because he was sure and sure. <laughs> well, that's why I would come back. <laughs> More coffee. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that, that totally makes sense to me because it even happens within our life. Um, oh, yeah. You know, we go through phases of life and hopefully we're learning more stuff. And a lot of times um, when we get through a really difficult part, uh, down the line we can look back and realize that we learned something from that. Um, yeah. Or, or yeah, maybe, yeah. you know, maybe we don't learn and we end up doing that same thing over again. Yeah, well, one of the, you know, have you ever heard of Edgar Casey? Edgar Casey was the, probably the most famous psychic that lived in the 20th century. The, his, he was born in 1877, I believe, and died in 1945. He was called the sleeping prophet. There were all kinds of headlines about him because he would, you know, be able to tell things that nobody could possibly know because he was psychic. He, he, he actually put himself into a trance every morning and every afternoon and uh, people would write in and have questions. Many of them had to do with uh, uh, physical issues, health problems where the doctors hadn't been able to help them. And so they, they'd ask Edgar Casey about it and he'd give them a cure, give them a, how to get rid of it. But a lot of them had to do with uh, otherworldly and psychic things. And he, uh, he talked and he incarnate, uh, Past lives often had to do with people's problems in today's life. You know, something that was a hangover from something from something in a past life. You know, phobia they might have, for example. And he said that karma was really kind of more like a memory, and that an example he would he gave was take someone who seems to always attract the wrong kind of person to them, that treats them badly, that abuses them to that is uh, disrespectful to them. <clears throat> and that person always seems to have that happen to them. Now, why does that happen? It probably happens because whoever it is has a low opinion of themselves and attracts people who share their low opinion of that person. And so the way for that person to overcome that is to realize that they are a human being, you know, they're a soul, they're a, they're a spiritual being inhabiting a physical body right now, and that they're very special, and they shouldn't, you know, they don't have to put up with that. Once they get that through their heads, they're going to stop attracting the wrong kind of person to them. One of the metaphysical laws, and I believe this is absolutely true, and it's certainly what the Rosicrucians say, and that is that like attracts like. You're going to attract people to you who are very much like yourself. And so in this case, karma is not a punishment of that person who, it is a punishment in the sense that they don't like being abused, 
but it's a teaching mechanism, mechanism for them to learn what they need to do about themselves. And so you can really look at life as there's no such thing as a bad things happen. It's only opportunities to learn uh, from. And even, you know, when you get sick or you have something terrible happen, like you were saying, when you go through it at the end, after some time, you can look back and think, wow, you know, that really, that was really a period of growth for me. Uh, you know, it, it uh, opened my eyes about certain things. So right. Then, that you hope, you hope. I, yeah. And I, yeah. as you said, not always. And then probably the same problems can happen again. I right. think one of the reasons that people do get sick is because they're on the wrong path in some way. And it's kind of a, uh, it's, it's, it should be a red flag that goes up and say, hey, you need to do something to change because you're not, you know, you're not headed in the right direction. And, and the universe is giving you a signal here, you know? Right. That, yeah, that's a very good, makes sense to me. Absolutely makes sense to me. And uh, I also was curious, you, um, you're interested in UFOs and you have some thoughts about UFOs. Uh, it seems there's more every day, literally every day, there's another news story about um, the government having to release you evidence of UFOs. So I th this is really interesting. It seems like we're getting closer and closer to learning a lot more about whether or not um, other life is visiting this, this earth. Um, yeah. 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 I, uh, <clears throat> I read somewhere recently that um, that the NSA is it the NSA or is it NASA? Somebody is going to from the government is going to release a report on UFOs. I think it said by June one, uh, and the guy that was quoted in the article was uh, the head of uh, the intelligence agencies, all the intelligence agencies under Trump. I can't think of his name. But anyway, yeah, so we're going to get some more information. But I'll tell you, my first job out of college, <clears throat> my boss was a, had been a, a colonel in the uh, Air Force. He was retired colonel, mm -hmm. and he had been a pilot. And he told me one evening we're having some drinks or something that he uh, was flying this big transport plane over the Atlantic. And he had a crew, I think, of four or five other guys on the plane and this ufo this bright light came up and flew alongside him right off uh, to his right for half an hour wow all, wow. all of all of the crew saw it uh -huh. and and then at some point it just shot off to the right in a way that you know would be physically impossible with the kind of airplanes and machinery we had mm -hmm. but he fought he filed a report uh and never heard any more about it so that started me thinking well they must exist i mean this guy had no reason to tell that story to me except that uh, you know it happened and i think that what they are are people or whatever from civilizations that more are more advanced in us than us than we are and I don't think that they're going to land on the White House lawn and say, take me to see Joe Biden. I think they're not going to really interface with us until they feel we're ready. Because 
I think one of the most important things about us and about being a sentient being is having free will. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to, they're not going to interfere with that. But when we ask them and when we're ready, I think then we will have contact. And hopefully I hope that happens in my lifetime because I'm really interested to know how in the world they're able to, how those machines work that they're how could they? Yeah, how, <laughs> could, how could they possibly be getting here? We even our uh, our science now seems to be getting closer and closer to some answers about how it might be possible. Um, yeah. I just read recently that they've the the idea of a warp drive. If you're not a Trekkie, then you maybe don't understand what warp drive is. But warp drives actually warp space, and the way they do the effects on Star Trek doesn't make sense because they just make the stars blurry. <laughs> but what you're really doing is kind of folding space and jumping through space because you're warping uh, the space you're in. It, it's it, Yeah. But, it's, but like now you're bend, it's like you had something way over here, something way over here, and you kind of bend them together. And you kind of, right. And then right. you get there. And you then, know, I think it could be something like that. I also think yeah. that there are other dimensions and that somehow they may go through those. I don't know. I mean, you know, they talk about how uh, particle entanglement in – quantum physics, where a particle, two particles separate, and they can be as far apart as the other side of the universe, and one changes, the other will change with it. So, I mean, they're, I mean, that's a fact. I right, mean, right. So, so uh, there's something going on there like that. Um, but I totally agree that it's, it's very possible that they um, are not going to, I actually think a big reason for not contacting or, or uh, um, not openly contacting <laughs> the people of earth is that because uh, I think they've contacted people. I think they've made, you know, I think there are people who probably have been in contact with extraterrestrials, but the, the biggest thing is that we're n- maybe not far enough along our, our path as far as what we believe in. And as far as how much that would just, you know, really scare people. <laughs> There's so, so many people in societies who would be devastated to find out that we're not the only ones, you know, because of their beliefs, basically. Uh, I guess you're right. I hadn't thought yeah. about that part. I mean, I'm, I, I, you know, the church got all bent out of shape when uh, Galileo said the sun was at the center of the solar system. Right. Instead of everything revolving around the earth, you know, the earth was revolving around the sun, and that really got them upset. But uh, you're right. You know, the, talking about extraterrestrial life contacting us. Are you familiar with Ra and the law of one? No, no. What, yeah, well, what is well, that that's, about? That, that's kind of a, it's, it's going or it's surprising because I, I actually heard about this when it came out uh, and it's come sort of come back. I mean, you could find it on the internet. In fact, I've written a little short book about it. Uh, Ra was supposedly, supposedly a, uh, a extraterrestrial who is not just one being, but a a whole civilization that has combined into one being. Apparently, and Ross says that's what happens as we go along in evolution. And a group of people, three individuals, channeled Raw in the starting in 1980 and over a couple of years, 1981, 82, 83, something like that. There are five books that are about Ra and the law of one. And Ra 
supposedly, according to Ra, mm -hmm. was a civilization that existed on Venus a couple of billion years ago. Now people say, laugh, Venus can't support life. Well, that's true, it can't right now, but uh, NASA has come out and said that it could have, and this is recent, in the last six months, has come out and said that uh, uh, Venus would have been hospitable to life a couple of billion years ago that it had liquid water, you know, on the planet and all that, and the right temperatures and so forth. Mm -hmm. So anyway, right. Ra is supposed to have evolved on Venus and now exists in a non-physical dimension and came through these folks, channeled in the early 1980s, and uh, gave us gave all this information about how uh, we are in evolving and in, 19, in 2012, we would pass from being a third density world to the beginning of a fourth density world. And third density world is, uh, well, let me let's say what the first three densities are. The first density is just uh, mineral. It would be like a planet with no water, no, no life. Mm -hmm. Second okay. density world would be one with plants and animals. A third density world would be plants and animals and uh, beings that are self-aware, which is us. You know, we can step outside ourselves and think about ourselves and where we're going and what we did and where, what might happen like we're doing now. Right, right. A fourth density world would be where we realize that we're all one, that there's one life and that we're, you know, if you hurt, harm your neighbor, you're harming yourself kind of thing. You know, what did Jesus say? If you, whatever you've done to these, the least of my brothers you've done to me, something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, then a fifth density world is where we really get the technology going. And the sixth density world is where we get the, uh, the oneness and the technology together. And then a seventh density world is where we begin to return to the source and start all over again. So that's kind of raw in a nutshell, or the law of one in a nutshell. But it, what prompted me in saying that was the idea that some people have been in touch with these these uh, alien civilizations. Mm -hmm. And that that makes a lot of sense to me too. Is that there are other dimensions that we don't understand? Um, there was recently a movie with Matthew McConaughey. I think it's about two years old now, where he goes out into space and then he he gets kind of caught in between dimensions. And so he's watching his daughter in his, in, in the, in her room, like a year before he left. And it, it's, it's very twisted, but it, it was interesting because they were, they were putting together the whole multiple dimensions of space idea. And they were trying to explain it, you know, visually and in a movie. And it, it's, it was pretty wild. I can't remember what the movie's called now. Um, but, but that that's always um, fascinated me that there can be, you know, there can be other dimensions that we want. And even, I think even uh, scientists and, and physicists have talked about this. Oh yeah. Physicists yeah. talk about it. I mean, that, uh, I heard one of them was saying that he calculated there are 23 <laughs> dimensions, but <laughs> who knows? Interesting. I don't know. Interesting. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but uh, Ra would tell us that, our universe, our physical universe, is just a very small part of the whole thing. You know? Right, so, and that's really interesting. And uh, 
we kind of talked about this on my last podcast where um, we were actually using a deck of cards to illustrate how people's minds can't understand big numbers. Like you, we don't even understand how many combinations could be made out of 52 because it's so big. Uh, and it's the same thing with our universe. It's hard for us to understand the, um, the immensity of our universe. So it, it's got to be really, it's really difficult to conceive that there's more than one, <laughs> yeah. just one. Uh, it, and in a way it's easy to conceive when you look at, uh, um, when you look at these cool YouTube videos that start in outer space and slowly pan into earth and you, you know, first earth is just a blip. Like you can't even see it. It's just the head of a pin and you slowly pan in and, and they come all the way down to somebody's and, room. It's amazing. And our universe is so huge. I mean, and that's one of the things, you know, people say, well, you know, established science. Well, there really isn't such a thing as established science at this point, at least. I mean, people thought that the only, well, first of all, people thought the earth was flat for a long time, right? And then along comes Columbus or whoever that other guy went and circumnavigated the globe. And then people thought the uh, earth was the center of the universe. And then comes a Galileo and he blows all in that. And then along in 1920 something was Hubble, who up until then, we thought that the Milky Way was it. And then he figures out that Milky Way is just one galaxy of millions, billions of galaxies. And he figures out this whole red shift thing that everything is moving away from each other. Well, nobody knew that before 1920. Yeah, so, I didn't even realize it was that recent. That's, yeah, that's I mean, that's amazing. like maybe 100 years ago, but it yeah. seems to me like it's just practically yesterday. That's not long ago. <laughs> there are people older than that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, my mother would have, uh, when she was growing up, thought the Milky Way was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now now we've got, come full circle, and there are people who think the Earth is flat again. But <laughs> I, <laughs> they, they haven't seen those pictures that you were talking about. <laughs> it's true. It's hard to imagine. It's another example, I think, of people of our minds having a hard time with big things, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like, well, it's easier to think that the earth is flat and there's really, you know, there, or there's nothing out there or, the, you know, it's, it's an easier picture. It's kind of like the people who say the, the moon landing never happened. Right. But for and me, when I look at a picture of the moon or I look at any picture taken from space, that's not earth. You know, I, I just instantly say that is not where I live. You know, that's amazing. It just blows my mind. Yeah, you know, all these pictures coming back from Mars and all, gosh. Yeah, it's phenomenal. It's it's really amazing. Oh, and the other side of that is, uh, we were talking about extra, extraterrestrials. In all the sci-fi movies, they're certainly smart enough to uh, cloak themselves. So, you know, why couldn't there be people living on Mars now? And they make this imaginary planet <laughs> it looks like nothing could live there <laughs> we can yeah. visit they gonna they know where we're gonna come visit so <laughs> yeah that's what i've always thought about well why couldn't they just be hiding you know yeah, Mars is big. They... it's big planet. <laughs> right wow <laughs> just a thought just a thought yeah uh, yeah so yeah, this is all, it's all just amazing. And it's hard to, um, I mean, science is pretty advanced 
compared to what it was a hundred years ago. So that's why it's hard to think about how there's so much more that could be discovered. It's like, we do know now how to modify, how to study DNA actually in order to make, um, uh, uh, antidote for a virus in yeah. a year or, or which, even you know. edit it, even do some little, uh, you know, moving some things around to cure, uh, problems. And so right. Right. And we're, yeah. And we're very close to being able to probably cure diseases with, um, you know, DNA, and people, changing and the, DNA. Yeah. And that was just discovered, discovered in 1953 was yeah. when DNA was forgotten. What was the guy's name? Click and somebody I've got, I don't know, but anyway, it hadn't been that long ago. Right. It's new. It's really new. It's a very new science and it's just, it's mind boggling and, so it is, it is hard to, uh, because science is so advanced, sometimes it's hard to realize that it's, it still could, there could be just, you know, there's new discoveries every day. There's new discoveries every day. Um, yep. there's ship captains discovering that the Suez Canal is not that big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. an unfortunate discovery. That's right. Everyone's like, what's the Suez Canal? What is that? <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, we have been, we've been talking a while. I could talk to you a lot longer, but I know I don't want to keep you here all night. Um, this is, uh, it's really, really an interesting conversation and you yeah. have 20 books that people can read about it. Um, what, what's the best place for them to find? Do you have a, a website that connects I, everything? I do. I do. My website's a very easy one to remember. It's S H martin all run together stephen holly martin shmartin.com shmartin.com go to that and you'll uh, see at the top uh, there'll be a menu and there's one little button that says books click on that and you'll see all those books and if you want to find out more about any one of them you can just click on the cover image and it'll uh, take you to a it'll open a new page that uh, tells you all about that book so yeah, and you could probably read, you know, the first chapter or so of it, maybe even a little more. And so shmartin.com. All right, that's good. That that's an easy one. So many yeah. people make it difficult. All right. <laughs> well, all right. Well, we're going to wrap this up today. You've been listening to. Were you still talking? This is Joel Albrecht, and I have been speaking to Stephen Hawley Martin, who is an amazing um, scientist, truth seeker, um, has good uh, new and different ideas about all kinds of things. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, maybe you could give it a star, give it a rating. I don't know. I don't care that much. We're all the same. What difference does it make? <laughs> so, thanks again for listening. And as I always say, be good to yourself. And be good to each other, especially since we are all the same.